for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at TNTradio.live. When you need to know what's going on around the world, stay with Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to the fourth and final hour of today's edition of Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. I trust that you've enjoyed. That was a robust interview with both Captain Dan Hanley and Captain Doug Green in the last hour. Two pilots involved in looking for truth in 9-11. Astonishing that 22 years on and nothing seems to be uh, moving in any direction there to get to the truth of that day. And the facts just keep building up and building up. And I was delighted that uh, Captain Dan was also able to provide information about Field McConnell a former pilot who uh, was doing a lot of work in the, uh, the space for 9-11 Truth, and then moved on to a completely different area involving human trafficking that ended up with him being put into a Florida prison. Extraordinary stories, but Phil McConnell is now out. A lot of people were following him on social media over the last few years, and uh, and he just vanished off the face of the earth, but he is alive and well. You don't normally expect to get that information, but there it was. Incredible. Who knows who in this world? Well, this hour we're coming back to Australia to do a little bit of political history, but more so to backtrack and look at a period of Australian political history under the Prime Ministership of John Howard, who was the Prime Minister of Australia from 1996 to 2007 and became the second longest serving Prime Minister after his hero, Robert Menzies. An incredible story because in Australia, from the period 1975 up until the period of 2007, some 32 years, there were only four Prime Ministers. Malcolm Fraser served approximately eight years, Bob Hawke also eight years, Paul Keating followed about four and a half, and John Howard about 11 years. Years. And since that period from 2007 up until 2022, there were seven changes of prime minister in this country in a period of just 15 years. How is that so that a country that likes to stick by its prime ministers through seemingly thick and thin, and we only had to have the recession we had to have only for Paul Keating to win the election that uh, could not have been won, but now we're in a period very, very differently where we flip-flop through. Even if the government stays the same, the prime ministers get turfed out one after the other. And we saw, of course, it was Kevin Rudd for Labor, replaced by Julia Gillard, who entered a minority government, uh, much to the uh, the work of Tony Abbott, uh, possibly Australia's best ever opposition leader, who absolutely annihilated the landslide that was uh, the, uh, the victory over John Howard in 2007. Rudd then replaced Gillard and was defeated. Tony Abbott became the Prime Minister, replaced by Malcolm Turnbull, replaced by Scott Morrison, and then defeated by Anthony Albanese. It's an incredible story. And my guest this hour is Andrew Blythe. He was the group manager of the John Howard Prime Ministerial Library at Old Parliament House from the period 2016 up until 2023, and is now the John Howard Fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies. He was a Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor in the Howard Government. He's also a lecturer in ideas deals, power and politics at the University of New South Wales, Canberra at the Australian Defence Force Academy, where he's also undertaking a doctorate in public leadership focusing on think tanks. He's contributed to several volumes analysing the four Howard governments while helping to build the John Howard Prime Ministerial Library and exhibition at Old Parliament House. And if you haven't had a chance, it is brilliant. 
along with his book, John Howard, From the Pavilion, uh, Shaping the Ascent to Power 2023. He's also editing another book on the Howard era titled The Art of Crisis Management, The Howard Government Experience, 1996 to 2007. And he's also a Fulbright Scholar in Australian United States Alliance Studies, where he completed his postgraduate degree in business at the University of Texas at Austin. Andrew Blythe, welcome to Weekends and thank you for your time today. Well, thank you very much, Jason. Have we got any time left? <laughs> yeah, I know it's a it was it's a pretty impressive bio, but it's very hard to take uh, some of that out because I like people to be able to appreciate just how much work goes into doing uh, this particular work that's going on. Because whilst we can be critical of our history, etc., we really are losing touch with a lot of what we thought we knew uh, in in a very much a changing world. And it's why I spent so much time there explaining the history and how governments have gone from very long term to very short term. And I was hoping, perhaps, in this discussion today that you might be able to shed some light on why you think it is that we've seemed to have flip-flopped after the Howard era into a very, very different political landscape here in Australia. Perhaps we can start there. Oh, look, I think that's a great point that you, uh, you 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 bring up, Jason. It's one of those things that when we actually look at that Howard era, that it just the stability that John Howard provided um, for our country over an 11 and a half year period, I don't think will be matched again. And it's something that, uh, you know, the second longest serving prime minister to Robert Menzies, uh, you know, someone who spent quite a long time in office. But I think what happened, and this is something that Labor um, admits, that there was a, the New South Wales disease of changing premiers made its way to Canberra. Mm. And then it subsequently we saw that within the Liberal Party itself. People were getting spooked by polls. We saw the turnover of leaders. And look, it, it's something that we need to remember. It wasn't always uh, rainbows and unicorns uh, in the early 80s to 90s for the Liberal Party. We we had the Howard, Peacock, Howard struggles. We had Downer as leader for a little while. Um, and so we, the, the tension was there within the, the party and it's always looking to the next election. And politicians um, are politicians and they will want to know, will this guy get us across the line? Will I hold my seat? Will I still have a job? Uh, and I think that's something that we, I'm not sure if we are going to return to the days of long prime ministers, um, but certainly it was a unique period in Australian history. Uh, extraordinary, is it? And perhaps it's part of the very much the changing of the guard. I mean, I remember working, um, uh, helping out a, a state Labor um, a, a Member of Parliament out in Western Sydney in 2006, and I remember saying to him that this would be the last election that won't be fought over the internet. And he kind of frowned, and and, and then he took it in, and he, he said, "You, I think you're right." And of course, Kevin 07 was literally, you know, months away, and the whole platform changed, didn't it? Quite oh, incredible. It, it 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 did explode, and of course, Mr. Howard is is famous for the "Good Afternoon" introduction on his YouTube uh, clip. Uh, so he tried to actually embrace himself there. Uh, within within that 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 new world, uh, Kevin Rudd, of course, um, stands there with a laptop uh, and says, "This is the future. This is um, you know the tools of the future." And and it, Labor pr provided that sort of fresh look. Um, I'm, I'm John Howard Light, um, which which Labor seems to find themselves saying. Albanese said it recently. I'm going to be a little bit like Bob Hawke. I'm going to be a little bit like John Howard. Um, John Howard sort of quipped and <laughs> said, well, how about you just be yourself? <laughs> um, 
So I think that explosion of, of 24-7 media um, really, really um, took, it, took it to another level. But John Howard was actually not um, shy. You might recall, of course, that he made the most of talkback radio. Hmm. Uh, he His communication um, style was, in fact, being the work of two doctorates that I'm aware of, Dr. Kim Murray, um, Adelaide University, and uh, Dr. David Marshall, University of Canberra, both look in some detail into the, the communication and messaging style of, of John Howard in government. And they're both very good uh, pieces of work. And we've we've had them uh, previously at our Howard Government Retrospective Conferences where they shared their their work, but also brought up to date, um, you know, contemporary analysis. So he 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 used talkback radio, but he certainly um, did dip his toe, if you like, when it came to uh, social media. Um, but he never really. Um, what am I looking for here? I think he mastered the the shopping centre visit mm. very very well, and other leaders not quite so since him um there's there's articles recently saying that albanese perhaps gets on um air force one more than he visits a shopping center yes john howard always always had his ear to the ground um very common sense underrated um uh, character um but he just knew how to talk to people and talk back radio uh was was a godsend for him yeah indeed you know it's interesting because in that election um uh, must have been I'm just trying to backtrack, but I, I met John Howard once at a shopping centre. Uh, actually, fast forward, it has to have been 2016. So he was campaigning right. on behalf of the local member on the Central Coast in New yeah. South Wales. And me being a typical um, uh, provocateur was wearing a Bernie Sanders T-shirt and I couldn't help myself and walked straight up to John Howard. And he shook my hand and addressed me and made reference to Bernie Sanders and said he was doing really well. We had a pleasant conversation for a couple of minutes with the former Prime Minister. And I could not help but be impressed with the manner that you've just described. Um, and I don't think you get that today either. Um, and, and there are many politicians that you, you meet along in your life at, at various different events, and a lot of them are quite awkward and just don't have that ability. And you, you just notice the very much the, the, the different the difference between them. And that obviously comes with experience and, uh, and and the prestige of higher office and the ability to be able to communicate. But the point there is that Andrew that you're making is that this man worked extremely hard for a very long period of time to be able to fine tune the work he did, and it probably explains a lot about how the longevity to achieve uh, 11 and a half years in office is just absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? Well, let me take your listeners back. Um, I've been fortunate in for the last year to have Mr. Howard involved in three of my book launches for the John Howard from the Pavilion, Shaping the Ascent to Power. Now, this book is actually a reproduction of articles that he wrote back in 1989. So if you remember, he was rolled by Peacock um, and there was a gang of five. And John Howard said about, he was approached by the Australian and they said about asking him to write a weekly column, which when you find out in his last year of school, there were three career options that he put up and being a politician wasn't one of them. Um, being a solicitor and um, being a detective Wow. And being, um, um, oh, sorry. It, was a, it, it wasn't a professional cricketer, though, was it? No, 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 based on, his, <laughs> based on his form. But I'll come to that because he did play for Methodist Fourths um, uh, at one point. But, yeah, look, it was never that he was going to be a politician. 
um, because there was the, the the importance there was to have a career, and so um, being a being the a student, if you like, of listening to radio, and we need to remember, and this is something that I brought up recently, that he's of course very self-deprecating, but he was diagnosed with deafness in his right ear when he was nine. Now, on top of that, his father dies when he's 16. But he still goes on to finish school and still does well enough to get into law school. Mm. Um, there are a couple of 16-year-olds that I know that struggle to get out of their bedroom most days. Yeah, But this fella, they he learnt the hard way because his um, father and grandfather uh, worked the, the service station, the family garage, and um he dealt with customers so he was dealing with people from a very young age mm -hmm. and this this customer service training if you like or the ease in which he had to uh, to deal with people he he it really helped him along um despite those difficulties with his hearing mm -hmm. um he he, de he dealt with it he put his um put his mind to doing his law degree and uh, of course he meets you know then uh, Jeanette Parker and uh, you know look out off he goes so I think there's a lot to be spoken about the resilience of John Howard, the setbacks, but that he never he he never tapped the mattress, and that stood stood through all of the challenges that he faced in in uh, the rest of his political career, and when he did lose the leadership, those articles that he wrote allowed him to just put um, down in 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 writing his views on a range of topics. And we're talking here about not just domestic, but also international. And we're we're at the dawn, the, the end of the the eighties, and at the dawn of the nineties. So he is talking a, a lot about um, the environment. He's talking a lot about budgets and economic management, pilot strike, workplace relations, crime, drugs, um, sport. But then internationally, he talks about South Africa, China, Japan. So it's not that hard to work out that by the time he does assume the office of prime minister, he's been around since 1974 and has been a minister. He's been treasurer at 38 mm. and he's able to bring all of that with him and the learnings from his previous time uh, within shadow cabinet where he didn't chair shadow cabinet well but he did very well chairing cabinet. And I think as time goes on, he learns the art of consultation and listening and, and engaging with his colleagues when those matters come before cabinet. So I think there's a lot to be said about a background of somebody, but he had a life before he entered parliament and then He's able to maximise his opportunity as Prime Minister. And I think that's something that we we were made aware of by Andrew Robb and, and Gary Gray when they were respective leaders of their um, the parties. And Andrew Robb was obviously uh, with the Liberal Party and Gary Gray was the Secretariat for the Labor Party. They both spoke of their concern about the types of candidates being cut from the same loaf of bread. Mm. And there was a time when we did have shearers, 
and farmers um, and policemen uh, and a range of other occupations before people chose uh, a life of politics. So, look, it's it's something that I, I fondly tell. I'm very happy to tell as much as I, I can about John Howard and, and his and his past. Um, and there's a lot to talk about in terms of what the, his government achieved in that 11 and a half years as well. Indeed, and I want to talk to you about that after the break. And one of the questions I'm going to I'm going to pose it now before we go to that break. Uh, it was uh, one of John Howard's uh, policies that he wasn't able to get up, and that was the one of income splitting. He copped a lot of criticism from Paul Keating uh, about that um, throughout his career. And the reason I bring it up now is that I, my understanding is that um, that uh, the UAP are exploring that as a possible policy uh, to put forward at the next federal election. And of course, it was largely or resoundingly defeated because of Centrelink and. Family tax benefit B was largely used as an excuse to um, to to stop it, which to, to me just makes no logic, uh, no common sense or, or logic. But I want to just explore that a little bit after the break. We'll take that break now, and then we'll come back with more here with Andrew Blythe on weekends on TNT. You should hear what Ross Cameron is talking about. I see there's a new trend taking place, sweeping uh, the internet of what they're calling sort of technology naked walks, where you go for a walk without your iPhone, without uh, a headset, and just alone with your thoughts. Apparently some people are finding it quite emotionally taxing, but subsequently liberating. Uh, certainly I find if I get into a motor vehicle with a teenager, it's a matter of seconds uh, before there is a request for uh, usually the latest uh, Taylor Swift song or some other form of electronic stimulus. We are generation apparently trained uh, for a very short concentration span and a desperate need for um, digital company. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future, with nutritious food to eat, a chance to learn, to get an education and do incredible things. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams by ensuring that they have access to health care, education, life skills, and more, so they can grow, thrive, and believe in themselves. Gracias. Gracias. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. Are you sitting comfortably? Oh, yes, yes. And I'll begin. Even when you're just sitting around, we're rocking the talk. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour is Andrew Blythe, and we're talking about the Howard era. Andrew, before the break, I just proposed the question why it may well be that income splitting, the idea of two partners in a household, husband and wife, or however the partners are arranged, one person may be earning, let's say, $100,000, the other person may be earning $30,000. Income splitting is the idea that uh, uh, both parties put their incomes together for taxation purposes. They combine their income of $130,000, they divide it by two, and they pay tax on that level of income, which seemingly would reduce the amount of tax paid in a household. 
I always thought it was a great idea. It made sense. It was a form of tax minimization for families that puts them on par with perhaps how business works. I never thought that John Howard would be the one to bring it up, but he was um, soundly defeated and, and much mocked about it. And yet it seems to be a policy that may well come back um, some 20 or 30 years later. Why do you think income splitting as such a policy was, was sort of mocked and never got off the ground and yet ended up as a Centrelink policy as family tax benefit be? I think what we see here any time that we, this is something that we sort of see more often now, is that whenever we bring out a policy idea, it is, it's it's all, all automatically stomped on. And uh, we had a period there where um, Malcolm Turnbull, when he was chairing the Menzies Research Centre, commissioned a tax paper. And the morning it was released, Peter Costello just put, a, um, put his foot down on it and said, no, nope, I'm the treasurer, I decide tax policy. So John Howard has actually always been a part of the contest of ideas. Mm. Uh, he's always put forward um, ideas right across a range of areas in, in, in social policy, economic policy, you name it. So I don't think it's one of those things that um, necessarily is a bad thing that it didn't get up, but it did perhaps come back in a different form. Um, but there'll always be someone ready to pounce on it and it'll de it depends if he puts it out and which think tank will then pounce on it. Um, I can already see the Australia Institute perhaps coming and saying, no, that's not going to work for the following reasons. Um, and this is something that I've said in, in the reason I did the book was that politicians shouldn't be afraid of putting forward ideas. Put their name to it and see how you go with the debate. But at least by the time an election comes around, people know what you stand for. And these small targets, these, you know, oh, let's just creep into office. John Howard set out in 1995 a series of headland speeches. Now, that'll be the, the, the 20th anniversary of those speeches will be from next year. And I'm going to um, actually have a look at look at those and see if we can do something with that, um, with a contemporary flavour to them. But I think that throughout his whole career, he's never been afraid to put out an idea and defend it. It's uh, it's a wonderful testimony yet again to be able to explain uh, the inner workings of a government like the way that you can recall. It's interesting that it was Peter Costello uh, that was the one that, uh, that that knocked it on its head, and uh, many people were wondering why it was that John Howard never handed over one way or another to Peter Costello, or that Peter Costello would even challenge John Howard, much like uh, Paul Keating did to Bob Hawke. Uh, very very different uh, way, but perhaps um, the Kevin 07 campaign was just that bridge too far and too late and a change was never going to happen because of course the result was that uh, John Howard whilst being defeated after 11 years in office also lost his seat only the second time and so it really does seem to uh, illustrate perhaps how a, uh, a pendulum swings in the mood of the country that even after that period of time uh, you're only as good as your last day in office so to speak. Well this is right and you, uh, that time is one where we remember um, John Howard was getting ready to face Kim Beasley and he got rolled mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it was you know John Howe looking at looking across at Kevin Rudd now there is a lot of respect in the Liberal Party particularly in the Victorian division for Peter Costello not standing and challenging John Howard because of that history of the Peacock Howard uh, debacle back in the 80s and, and in early 90s so Peter Costello um you know he gets ribbed a bit for it um, obviously, Paul Keating gives him a hard time for it, and others do as well. But I think there's a healthy respect for him, for the fact that he said, "I'm not going to do any damage," and that's, that's him putting the party ahead of himself. 
Um, and there are others that perhaps if there was a challenge, I don't think Peter Costello was going to be the only hand that went up that day. I can assure you Peter Reith would have nominated as well. Uh, just it's fascinating and uh, you, you wonder in, if history is going to allow that some of these um, particular eras are somehow made into uh, miniseries or or films etc uh, and dramatized in a way because uh, it, it's just fascinating when you look back I mean obviously they've made films about the uh, the dismissal but uh, these are equally as important and I wanted to refer now to um, the article that you wrote this week where you talk about the unveiling of the 2003 Howard government cabinet records that have just been released uh, and more that being a revelation of political decisions behind events such as the Iraq invasion and the Solomon Islands, etc. And, uh, and you're explaining the understanding of political history, but you also talk about the idea of civics and how this is something that both sides of politics have been pushing for some time, but there's been a drastic decline there uh, in the way that they're taught in schools. And I wanted to first start by just asking you to explain what civics actually means and, and what, what was the, the problem in the school system that has prevented it from being taught the way that it should be. So when we're talking about civics, it's actually giving students an opportunity to gain knowledge in the understanding of the functioning of uh, our democracy you know, our special democracy where we are a unique blend of Westminster and, and Washington. So we get the Washminster system. Uh, so we're an experiment that's been, that has stood the test of time uh, since Federation. And what I think we are faced with is, of course, a, it's, a, it's an alarming low rate of competency, particularly amongst our year 10 students that is not increasing beyond 38% competency and about 53 to 55% in the in the year 6 bandwidth so the alarming uh, the alarm bell should be ringing because year 10 is the last year in which students actually do civics and um, a couple of years later they leave school they're adults and not long after they get their chance to vote um, so i think one of the things that we we do here and this is something we tried to do ourselves at the Howard Library was we produced a set of curricula. Uh, and I have to say, sadly, I'd never heard back from one history teacher throughout Australia. Yeah. Everything was given to them. It's available on the on the Howard Library website. We we reached out through emails through the History Teachers Association. We just had no luck. One person told me that it was who it was. And I thought that was a shame uh, because the topics were on uh, peacekeeping and guns. And it fitted in very nicely with the year nine national curriculum standard. But I was quite surprised because just as another example of this, um, I did get a story up in the Australian and it had a couple of local students coming through the Howard Library and their photograph was taken as part of the, the story. And neither school responded to my letter saying that just so you know one of your students took part in this launch of our curriculum here's their photo you may want to mention them in class one particular school i had to send it twice and by the third time i hand delivered it so i'm not quite sure what else myself or uh, the robert menzies institute or the curtain library um, or the Whitlam Institute, what more we do, but teachers need to know that those resources are there yes. and um, uh, they should just jump on them 
and they can bring this period of office to life because it's there and it's it lines up against the national framework. It's an extraordinary revelation, uh, and one wonders if we're in a world now that conservative politics is somehow frowned upon, that we need to be progressive on top of progressive one way or another in, in, in a changing world that's changing so quickly. And yet at the same time, the voice referendum was soundly defeated, 61-39 nationally. And, and it seems to go against uh, the sentiments that you're explaining uh, right there. It, it's somehow this, this I don't know if it's a, a shame or an embarrassment, or, or perhaps it's just um, judging books by their covers. And perhaps it's a testimony to how teachers are, are trained or, you know, and, and yet at the same time, um, we're in this period here in Australia now that um, it comes out again that there's this whole Australia Day embarrassment that's going on that somehow uh, because uh, one of the supermarket chains has decided not to sell um, Australia Day uh, apparel, or whatever they're going to sell, another one says that they will uh, and, and, and a third one says no, uh, and yet we've got Woolworth saying no Australia Day apparel, but then they've got happy um, uh, Ramadan happy Diwali Day, all these other events. Uh, it, it just feels like people want to get out of the way all of a sudden and it's a minority rules society and anyone that's been somehow perhaps successful or historic, it's this weird sense of another type of tall poppy syndrome uh, that just doesn't make any sense. And it, it's hard to explain, Andrew, but this must be really disappointing for the work that you've done. Um, how did you overcome that or did, is this just something that you take in your stride and you just keep going? Yeah, you do. You do just um, you do just keep going and you keep producing it and you hope that somewhere there will be a history teacher that says, hey, um, this looks good, thank you. I don't have to do much at all. I mean, I go back to my time and I'm not, you know, I, school wasn't black and white for me. I'm not, I'm not that old. But I, I remember fondly my legal studies teacher um, and she brought – she brought it to life, and that 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 sort of teacher stays with you forever. As did mm. as did my year six primary school teacher and and her strictness. But um, I write because she because of her. And um, my legal studies teacher, we would we would have mock parliament in in in, in the classroom and um, encouraged me one one school holidays to go and sit in on a court hearing, um, and uh, and parliament question time and to see where I might want to take my career. I was hooked with question time. I sat in the South Australian Parliament and was hooked with question time. So that's where it began for me. Now, we may only touch, reach one person, but, you know, that's that's good. But I think if we were to take it back and actually, okay, so your concern is it's John Howard. Let's have a look at what happened with gun reform. That showed you that government can, be, um, can do good. Mm. And not just the national government but the way the state governments got involved as well and we saw here that you know when we talk about um politics and and politicians the element here of public leadership that is a that was a huge decision to step into an area that we we needed to do something so that we made people feel safer and it is something that has stood the test of time no one's actually touched it i know that they've done a little bit of tweaking with it more recently, but we're talking about standing in front of a public rally in sale um, and being told that there is the possibility you may be shot. So could you please wear this vest? And that vest and jacket are on display, which you would have seen when you walk through with your with your kids in that to the Howard Library. Yes. 
you don't need a lot of words. In that particular section of the library, there's very little words because you don't need them. Mm. Images are enough. Um, but we need to remind you, our school kids that um, there is there is government that can be used for good, and that, that is one of those examples. And the other one is, like I said before, is peacekeeping and the sending of Australian soldiers, men and women overseas to act as peacekeepers. Well, surely we could actually encourage some of that as potential future careers for our year 10 students to, to think about. Um, but again, if this, oh, because it's John Howard, I'm not going to teach it. Ah, that, that's that's really sad. It's 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 very odd, isn't it? Um, I, I, I'm at a loss to even explain how it can be just treated so negatively when you have the second longest uh, serving prime minister that it would be dismissed out of hand like that. I was hoping that we could just go back a little bit uh, to the museum itself uh, yes. or the, the, this particular area. And as I said in, in the opening, it is a magnificent um, uh, display. It's just, it blew me away. I mean, I, I'm a little bit biased because I think Old Parliament House is my favourite building in Canberra. Yes. I can Every time I go down there, I can spend hours just wandering through, yes. uh, sitting on the old uh, leather seats in the party yeah. room and, and it feels like you're on an old train, uh, such tough um, that the seats are. But you just imagine the conversations that were in there at a time when Australia was in a very, very different period. Uh, it was a lot smaller. You walk into the Senate and you realise just how tiny it was when you compare it to New Parliament House. Um, but there's just something magnificent about that building. And of course, when you stand out the front, you can look up to Capitol Hill and uh, and get a feeling for, for the whole area. And anyone who hasn't been needs to go to, uh, to Canberra to be amongst it. It is one of the great... Uh, inexpensive holidays with so much to do in the nation's capital. But um, how did it come about and how much work is actually involved in setting up something like the uh, this the John Howard Library? Oh, well, look, at, thank you. Um, I always love telling this story. So I worked for uh, a great man, uh, Professor Tom Frames. Uh, he was the former bishop to the, to the Australian Defence Force. And he and I had struck up a friendship uh, many, many years before. And the opportunity uh, popped up where um, he asked if I was interested in working with him. And we were uh, the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict. But every lunchtime we sat together and we said, what could we do if we if we had the opportunity to uh, do more for John Howard? And to cut a long story short, we ended up moving into Old Parliament House in 2017. And it was um, a little while you know, I had nothing but a trestle table um, and I was surrounded by workmen who were putting um, putting the exhibition together. But uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful period of my, my career to be involved in that and calling Prime Minister and Cabinet one day and just saying, where are all the gifts that John Howard received when he was Prime Minister? And next thing you know, they're rocked, rocking up and they're in Coles and Woolworths bags and saying, here you are, thank you. Thankfully, someone's going to display them. And there's the um, the torch from uh, the 2000 Sydney Olympics that was um, kindly uh, gifted to us from a gentleman in O'Connor here in Canberra from um, the ACT Olympics Council. So, and, and military people very happy to provide their uniforms and some of their personal items as well, because there's a whole national security section, as you can, as you might remember. But the real the real kicker for me was actually reaching out to my old boss, Kevin Andrews. And I said to him, I'm coming to get John Howard's suite. The um the you know, the Chesterfield 
chairs because he had yes. them in his Parliament House office. And he just, Kevin being Kevin said, good, Andrew, good, yes, good. <laughs> and so next thing, they're on the truck and um, people can see a, a, it's not like a replica um, you know, oval, oval Office, but we have tried to show people what his prime ministerial office looked like during his time. And any office that has Chesterfield chairs is an office that you want to be in. The most beautiful chairs in the world, the most comfortable. Still don't own one. Uh, no, and, they're uncomfortable. And, uh, well, if you get a good one, I trust me that they are. We have a family of upholsterers uh, and we've made some really beautiful ones over the years. So hopefully the, maybe you didn't get the good ones. Well, on that note, uh, on the Chesterfield note, we'll take a break, a quick break, and we'll be back with more here with Andrew Blythe on Weekends with Jason Olborn on TNT. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. The U.S. National Anthem. It should go without saying that when it plays, U.S. athletes stand at attention, put their hand over their heart and sing. But remember the women's national soccer team in 2020 and then last year in New Zealand at the World Cup? Here's some examples of that. Now compare those disrespectful displays to this year's USA junior hockey team after they defeated the home team of Sweden to win the gold last weekend. The contrast is stunning, and the U.S. women's soccer team and the whole organization should be forever shamed. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. I was such a young age. Everything changed. My name is Chloe. When I was 13, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. When I found out I just didn't know how to react. I felt like everything was just kind of closing in on me. It just became a routine. Dad's doing chemo. I'd come home from school, wait for mum to finish work, and we'd go straight to the hospital, spend a few hours there, just draw. It was hard to navigate going to school. Hundreds of kids, and I was the only one with a dying dad. He was diagnosed in March, and then he died in October. Towards the end, I heard about canteen. It kind of felt nice to know that they had other people like me. They understood what I was going through and we didn't even have to chat about cancer. In 2020, I became a youth ambassador. So I can help others the way they helped me. I've done so many things since I was 13. I've graduated high school, university, gotten my licence, made a move across the country. Life now is just a whole lot more fun. Please give a gift today to support more young people like me experiencing cancer. Weekends are better when you spend it with us. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT.
Welcome back to Weekends. I'm here with Andrew Blythe, who is part of the period of the John Howard era, 11 years. Goodness me, is the second longest serving Prime Minister. And it's been a great uh, conversation and understanding of something that many of us are unaware of, the uh, recent political history of Australia and how that's preserved and understood. And despite the uh, longevity and the four terms in government, the resistance uh, is something that I didn't expect, Andrew. Uh, it's it's It surprises me. I wonder if there's a difference perhaps in the Bob Hawke Library in Adelaide or something like that. Have you heard of any comparisons perhaps being made between different libraries of recent uh, long-serving Prime Ministers? Uh, well, I think certainly um, my, well, my my colleagues there in, in the Hawke Library and um, you know, Whitlam Institute um, you know, the, the, that period of office, if you like, was well, particularly for Bob Hawke, it was a, it was nearly, I think, it was eight years, um, and you know, there was there was certainly a lot of uh, policy reform that was during that period, and um, it, then it, obviously Paul Keating another five years from there, uh, and Whitlam being um, so uh, you know so remembered for what was, I would think, so a chaotic period of, of, of government. Um, but uh, importantly, what we find with the, the libraries is the link that's important is the link to curriculum uh, and making sure that people have that opportunity to analyse those those periods of office. Um, and so this is born out of the work that Professor Tom Freeman and I did when we both went and did a, uh, our separate study tours of presidential libraries. Um, I happen to have been fortunate that when I did my Fulbright scholarship, I was at the University of Texas and the Lyndon Johnson Library is there. Um, and there's something like 53,000 artefacts that is um, that, that have been donated to that library. I've been to um, Jimmy Carter um, as well, and that's, uh, that's something we'll come back to in a minute. Uh, and I've also been to Reagan. Now, that's a theme park. Uh, if you if you want to see Air Force One, Marine One, and the Beast, fill your boots. Um, and then you go to the George W. Bush Library, which is a part of uh, Southern Methodist University. Um, obviously, the more you know, there's the more recent one with um, Obama coming along, um, and who knows what Trump might end up doing. Um, but yeah, certainly there's um, the, the links to curriculum allow for scholars and journalists to reach out to, to people to be able to access documents and, and get their hands on some of that, but also importantly, be able to reach out to some of those key players during that period. Of course, and John Howe's the first to admit he didn't do government by himself. Mm. There were many, many other people that made up the four Howard governments um, over that time, and they've all been very generous. Uh, Alexander Downer comes to mind. Um, you know, Peter Costello, who's spoken at one of our conferences, David Kemp, you know, they've, they've all been willing participants in sharing their role um, in, in Australia's political history. And, I'm, and the same for people when, when Bob Hawke passed away. I know that the, the Hawke Library was very, very busy during that period of time. Um, and, and look, I know that the University of New South Wales initially did try its best to work with Paul Keating to set up a library for him, um, but that just never came to fruition. And it's a shame because there's, there's that again, there's someone who got into politics at 25 and, um, you know, left his mark on, on our, on our um, political landscape and 
students deserve to to see um, how he went about making some of those big decisions. Indeed, and and even John Howard, it's my understanding that he gave a speech uh, at the Marconi Club in Western Sydney and said, if it wasn't for Paul Keating, um, I wouldn't have done as well as I did, was some reference to that, which I'm not sure if has been recorded anywhere, but um, because there was always this great friction. But um, we had a period, as George Megalogenis wrote, that was some 30 years without a recession in this country, which was a result of the reforms of Paul Keating that were effectively piloted um, uh, in the Howard era, because it's one thing to have a reform, but it's another thing to then create the smooth sailing that follows. Um, what's the point of having reform after reform after reform if we just keep changing for the sake of change? This was a, an economic structure that was set up, even though it was criticised, you know, the the um, the invention or creation of superannuation, the way that it started that created a huge, you know, a savings pool uh, for Australians in a country that traditionally didn't save very well at the time. And so it, it's, it was a very interesting period that, uh, that, that Megalogenes wrote about. Uh, I think he called it the longest decade from memory. Uh, it's quite fascinating. I, I wanted to um, just move forward a little bit because um, you've mentioned that the Keating Library hasn't really come to fruition. Is there a, a particular amount or term length in office where the invitation to create a library comes about as we sort of move forward to these very short terms in office of Prime Ministers since the Howard era? Great question, Jason, because that's something that I've been um, putting some thought to myself, and that's part of what I said in my piece um, for this week, is that we need a national framework to actually establish prime ministerial libraries uh, in a way that is deserving of that person who has served at the highest level. And what we do face, though, is a series of prime ministers who weren't in for very long. And whether or not it's a case that we have a, we look at, say, the Museum of Australian Democracy having a prime minister's centre, um, and the cultural institution that it is has space available for more centres um, within it or libraries within it. Adelaide University, they did approach me at one point. I think they were interested in doing something for Julia Gillard. Um, if we think about the timing of the Cabinet Papers, it's only about five years since uh, five years' time and Kevin Rudd's first lot of Cabinet Papers will be released. So is ANU in Canberra looking to do something for him. Well, if they are, they better get their skates on um, because just the time that it takes to actually go from idea, concept and design and build to official opening, uh, it doesn't take a year. It takes a lot longer than that. So I think we should have a national framework. It should be something that any prime minister um, can pull out of the drawer and go, okay, my predecessor served for X number of years. We're gonna commit a certain amount of money for them, but they have to then go and raise money privately, uh, any matching funds as well. So whether or not it's, it's you know, we, we secured $13.5 million for John Howard, and that was based on 11 and a half years. It was also based on other amounts that I found, and they were not easy to find, uh, but I did find them. And we then landed on $13.5 million, and, and the plan was to live off the interest. So there are ways to do it, but it needs to be done. And I think um, certainly there is a role for the Museum of Australian Democracy to be leading this uh, and, and in concert with uh, some of our universities. Wonderful. Um, now, you're still lecturing at the Australian Defence Force Academy on behalf of the University of New South Wales, and, and you're lecturing in power and politics. Is that correct? That's right. First year cadets. So fresh out of high school. Wow. Yeah. 
yep. and, and straight thrust into it. Uh, and, and and how does it just to, for a little bit of background? How, how then, if they if these cadets are learning about politics and power, how does it relate to their careers as future officers in in the Australian military? Well, the importance of getting this education, and of course, ADFA itself is a unique environment uh, for any any military person that knows their stuff, that there isn't anything that replicates it uh, anywhere in the world. So it's something, uh, the place was opened in 1986 and still going strong. And it's it's actually about giving that balanced and liberal education to our officers. And it's about critical thinking. And so that they're able to put an argument together when they are presenting uh, an argument to a minister in the future as to why they need a certain bit of kit. Um, or what are our strategic priorities for that need to be in our next white paper? I mean, we're talking these, the, the people I'm looking out at are our future AUKUS leaders. Um, they may not know that, but they will be in 25, 30 years time, the decision makers mm-hmm. um, of AUKUS of the, and, and nuclear submarines and, and the, the tensions that may still be in our region and, and committing their, their, their mates to, to war. So, yeah, it's important that we don't bombard them in first semester about needing to know everything. Um, we we ease them into it, but we give them that broad overview of Australian politics and political history, but also um, where Australia sits in the region. Indeed. Now, we're down to our last sort of, uh, I think it's about five or six minutes here, but um, I wanted to ask you about another article that you wrote uh, and made reference to uh, Anthony Albanese. Uh, and also um, uh, former US President Jimmy Carter. As we move towards next year already, uh, another federal election looming, it it appears that post-voice, and perhaps it was even before that, that Anthony Albanese, not many people thought that he could be a one-termer, and yet here he is facing a popularity fight for uh, for, that Peter Dutton all of a sudden is in the frame himself, uh, a seemingly not-so-popular opposition leader, uh, is now talking about the possibility of either winning government or forcing a Labor minority government. I wanted to get your perspective on all of this what i did with that article is i just being a student of us politics i do remember jimmy carter's malaise speech in 1979 and when you read it to yourself it's actually it makes sense it's just asking for people to not consume as much and that meant not just material but also let's just take it easy when it comes to our energy consumption and um you know we just need to show a bit of restraint so it, in that sense it wasn't a bad speech it was just the way it was delivered and Reagan was to have none of it. This man was all about, let's make America great again. So he was Captain Optimism, and that shone through in his um, acceptance speech in 1980, and then obviously the electoral result that he got uh, in November of 1980 to become sworn in, in, in as president in January of 1981, and gets re-elected four years later. So I think for me, this was something that I just thought there is some self-inflicted uh, wounds that Albanese and his government are, are, are sort of have done to themselves and they're, they're not being allowed perhaps through their own fault on a few things, the narrative that they want to get out there. It's, and there's a great line in uh, American President, which uh, has uh, Michael J. Fox as an advisor to the president, Michael Douglas. And um, he says, you know, in the absence of, of leadership, anyone will just step up to the microphone. Well, this is what's happened. Peter Dutton has grabbed the microphone and I don't think he's going to give it back anytime soon. 
Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it, to see how the machinations of politics are played out based on the uh, the story de jour, the story of the day. Um, Jacinta Price was um, was uh, extraordinary in the uh, no campaign against the Voice, uh, and and much has been spoken about her as a potential future leader of the uh, the Liberal National Coalition. Um, how do you see uh, her career, um, perhaps uh, in future governments there, even though she's in the upper house? Do you think that it's possible that she may move to the lower house and and start to uh, to, to look for uh, senior roles in a future government there? Jason, I, I actually attended um, an event here in Canberra where she spoke and I was very, very impressed. Um, you know, just that rawness of her, her, her life experience, which is what I was talking about at the beginning of our discussion about people having a life before they enter parliament. And this is something that she brings is some of that rawness uh, of some of the, the issues that our Indigenous brothers and sisters face in, in those communities that she represents. Anything is possible in politics. A week is a long time in politics, Jason. Um, but I think what we want to make sure is that, and this is something that I think um, Michael Danby mentioned about uh, Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd is they got there too early. They The party burnt them out. So I'd want to make sure that for Jacinta's longevity, she's given some serious portfolio work before she leapfrogs ahead and gets to be Prime Minister. And, and then to quote Robert Redford's character in The Candidate, now what? Yeah. Um, it's it's something that I think she she would do really well to be grounded in some, some strong... Um, portfolios, be it social security, sure, Indigenous affairs, um, maybe even give her health, at, you know, one of the hardest portfolios to work in. Get her get her grounded and then see where she, she may land. Yeah, in, indeed. Now, we are, you, you've made a few references there to some uh, political uh, TV, movies, theatre. Do you have a favourite political film or TV show? Well, it would have to be West Wing. Yeah. Um, but that that in its day, and I, I was, um, yes, uh, certainly American president. I mean, I'm, if you have a look at my, uh, you know, Netflix history, there's quite a lot there. It would look like no one else in the house watches anything, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, that's just how it is. It's what I grew up on. I grew up on a diet of the, the, the news and newspapers. And so, um, you know, much, much rolling eyes when I'm in charge of the remote, that's for sure. No, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, it was uh, after watching an episode of The West Wing when it finished, when Jim Whaley on Channel 9 News came out and announced that a plane had hit the World Trade Centre um, was at the event that I'll never forget. Uh, and it was The West Wing, of course, that uh, I was watching. And that series went on for many years after that, which play obviously it's about the fictional Democratic president played by Martin Sheen and predicted Aaron Sorkin, the most brilliant screenwriter, I, I, I think, in the modern era, who predicted uh, Barack Obama. Uh, through the character of, of Matthew Santos, played by Jimmy Smith, right. in that series, was was just extraordinary. And the idea that um, that Santos's character would approach his opposition leader, uh, sorry, his opposition uh, in Alan Alda's character, Arnie Vinnick, to become his Secretary of State uh, from the Republican Party to join the Democrats was just political. Um, uh, it was just a fairy tale. It was wonderful to watch. It was well, incredible. I'll, I'll quickly share this with you, uh, Jason, with John Howard at my book launch recently, and. David Cameron had just been appointed to the House of Lords and Foreign Secretary. And uh, you talked before about, you know, what are the possibilities of, say, you know, Scott Morrison coming back into a, a senior portfolio if there's a change of government. I actually lent into John Howe and I said, any chance of a comeback, my lord? 
uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> he brushed it off brilliantly as always. But yeah, that, that's, um, yeah, I just thought I'd share that with you as, as a lighter moment that I share with John Howard. I love it. Uh, it's been a delight, Andrew. We have reached the end of the hour, but an absolute thrill to be able to dig deep into the real world of politics, how it works behind the scenes, the um, the, the pitfalls, the glory uh, and the hard work that never ends as you just dedicate your life to making a better Australia. Uh, for that, uh, you should be congratulated. And that's why I read out the world's longest bio at the beginning, but it's not. I do that for everyone. But uh, I'm just thrilled that you're able to spend this time with us here today on TNT Radio. And I would be delighted to be able to speak to you again in the future and keep up to date with the wonderful work that you're doing on that note uh thank you andrew and uh thanks to our viewers and listeners today coming up next i believe it's an encore of mark morano but don't take my word for it you have to stick around after the news for more thanks for watching weekends i'll see you tomorrow on tnt